Hello everyone and welcome to episode 286 of So You Want To Be A Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre where you'll find writing courses and an incredibly supportive writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. How are you, Al? Well, I am okay. That's good. Yes. I'm, you know, like I know that that's not my usual response. It's fair to middling and et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I'm slightly above okay. I got a very, very nice review this week from the um, American Library Association of the Book of Secrets on their book list online post. And I was extremely um, chuffed by it because they described it and this is kind of like this for me is exactly the kind of thing that I was hoping for with this particular book um so it's the book of secrets which is the first book in the Adavan cipher novels and they described it as a fast-paced adventure brimming with mystery and complex navigations of loyalty and morality isn't that nice wow I really like it well, the thing, the reason I love it was because one of the things that I realised I was exploring as I went through this, the process of writing the book, and sometimes you don't realise what you're exploring until you've actually written the book, um, was this whole notion of good and bad, what is good, what is bad. And so taking a character like Gabe, who's grown up in a monastery with very, very black and white, you know, ideas yes. of what is good and what is bad and rules to live by, and then putting him into the real world. Um, where, you know, sometimes the complexities of that are a lot greyer um, than we would necessarily like them to be, and putting him with a group of girls who have to survive on their own and so very much understand the complexities of good and bad and 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 the sort of grey area in between was one of the most interesting aspects of writing the book for me. Like, mm-hmm. you know, beyond the whole why would you write a book no one can read, um, it was actually a fairly – you know, when you actually knuckle down to it, it's actually quite a complicated story. And so I was, yeah, I was really excited that the reviewer, Eleanor Roth, had actually got got hold of that. It's lovely when someone gets the notion yeah, of what absolutely. you're actually doing. Yeah, it's great. Did you so, feel as you wrote it, did you know as you wrote it, oh, this is potentially a complicated story or did that just unfold? Well, you know, for me, these things always unfold because yes. I'm never actually quite sure where I'm going uh, when I start. Um, and so I guess when you set the question up of, of you know, having this uh, manuscript, this book that is written in code that no one understands, that, no, you know, it could be anything. So when you set that question up and you set off on a quest to work out what that book is, which, of course, again, I didn't know until I started writing the book what the Adaban Cipher even was. Um, so I, you know, when you set that up a big question like that with stakes like that you know you you are you know that you're not in for a simple ride and particularly not when you um bring in the the characters that I have so there are actually six main characters in this book like the Gabe is our protagonist and we see the whole story through his eyes but the the girls the four girls as well as um Eddie who who they kind of collect along the way those characters all have their own stories and their own backstory and so once you start trying to manage all of that stuff you you are dealing and of course you know I'm always aware that I'm writing this story for kids who are 9 to 13 so you're managing a lot of complexity in a in an accessible fashion um Mm. and and some days that's actually really hard work (laughs) yes and so good that somebody in America is you know is reading it and taking the time 
to 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 write the review because obviously your books are available in America now, so it's fantastic. That's right. So it's very exciting, and the American Library Association, you know, it's a it's a big thing, and I'm very excited by that. So that's my that's my week. I'm pretty happy with that aspect of my week. Well, and of I course, think you should be more than okay then. Well, I, I yes, okay, I would, but I I have a slight headache. And, you know, it's been a long week. And so, you know, there's, so the, this is the whole thing. The joys of life are always slightly tempered by a headache sometimes, aren't they? So, you know, there's that There's that aspect. But, you know, what about you? I know you've been super busy because you have been all over the place. Yes, I have been in on planes, trains and automobiles and spending quite a bit of time in Brisbane in the last couple of weeks for some reason doing uh, running workshops and um, uh, meeting up with people. So, I'm glad to be back because I just want to, you know, watch some Netflix <laughs> instead of eat plane aeroplane eat, you know, instead of have a situation where all my nutrients are provided by Qantas. Yeah, it's it's not easy, is it? But what are you, what are you planning on binging? Like I'm I'm sure you've got it all lined up and ready to go. Apparently Chernobyl is good. I I haven't started it yet. Yes. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm looking for something to get my teeth into because after I binge-watched Line of Duty all five seasons, I was bereft, completely bereft because it was such a good series, like the the best series you've never heard of, basically. I'd love I've heard so of it. I've seen it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I had never heard of it. You know, some of us are early adopters of these things. What Clearly. can I say? Um, do you know what I started watching? And read. Do you know yes. um, what I started watching last weekend was a um, Netflix series called When They See Us, which oh, is about yeah. the Central Park Five, a group of boys who were um, com- who were um, convicted of a crime yeah. um, that they didn't commit. And mm. I started watching it. I was, you know, because I, I was doing the ironing because, you know, that's kind of how I roll on a Sunday afternoon sometimes. Yes. Most Mostly the builder does it, but it was me this week. And um, I was there with my ironing. I'm doing the school shirts and I'm watching this show and I had to turn off the first episode halfway through and go and have a little breather because it was mm. I was so outraged and so upset oh. for these kids um, who were being questioned without adults, who were being put into a situation where they were – um, making, um, you know, kind of like being eyewitnesses against each other when they'd never, they didn't even know who they were. They didn't even know each other at that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was basically, it was a huge miscarriage of justice and it was yeah. incredibly hard viewing, but I actually think, particularly that first episode, but I really think it's worth watching because I, you know, it still goes on. And I think that that's the thing that people, oh, everyone looks at it and goes, oh, you know, but it was the seventies or eighties or whenever it was. But, mm-hmm. um, in actual fact, it still goes on, and I think that. So I think those kinds of um, those kinds of series are hard graphs sometimes, but I mm. I think that they deserve watching. Yeah. All right. Well, we will report back on our TV watching. <laughs> this is not so you want to watch Netflix. This is so you want to be a writer, and we want to give a big shout out to Anna Votsaris, who kindly left us a review on iTunes, and she entitled it "The Podcast for Writer." hands down the podcast for writers hands down um and anna says i applaud and thank you val and al for providing listeners with so much valuable information in a genuinely warm and fun way your interview skills are outstanding and it's so obvious how much you both love what you do ensuring that so you want to be a writer is a real pleasure to listen to every time 
It's very easy to binge listen to the podcast. Yes, I do. Or to revisit certain episodes again and again. I have to add that elements of writing that might be learnt from formal writing courses might be might be learnt right here with you. So You Want to Be a Writer will provide many an aspiring author with the knowledge and just as importantly, the inspiration to really work towards achieving their publication dreams. I love this podcast and so wonderful to have joined your, your closed Facebook group. I can't wait to enrol in my next Australian Writers' Centre course. Thank you. Wow, cool. Thank you, Thank you so much, Anna. Yes, you've made our day. I would say, I'm I'm sure I speak on behalf of Al, that she's moved up from okay to (laughs) awesome now. Now I'm awesome. (laughs) Everything is awesome. That's right. Um, Yes, and if you have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it helps us in the rankings. So we have a couple of interesting links for us. Um, you have a couple of interesting links for us. <laughs> have, some, <laughs> Al. have some for us and we do speak properly <laughs> most of the time. Um, well, I came across a, a little link this week on the Australian Society of Authors um, website, asauthors.org, asauthors.org, um, and it was about it's, – it's in their sort of find an answer section. They actually have this great section on their website called Find an Answer where there are so many terrific little resources, you know, about contracts, about legal, about publishing, about rates of pay. They set the rates of pay for, you know, school visits and literary festival visits and stuff like that. If you don't know what to charge, have a look at what they um, recommend and ask for ASA rates if you can get them because it, it's it's important that people recognise, A, the work that they do, but also, B, the fact that your time is valuable, you know, like if you're going to go out and talk to schools and things like that, then then um, and you're speaking to 100 kids, well, they're getting something from it, so why aren't you? Um, now, the question that I wanted to bring up this week, though, was all about ebook piracy, um, which is something that I think we can all agree um, is definitely on the rise. And uh, the the ASA has a response to, you know, what do I do if I find my ebook on a pirate site? Um, because, of course, one thing that members do do is also report to the ASA. Um, they do surveys every year about the kinds of things that people are, you know, experiencing with their publishing, etc. Um, and so they have a series of steps here of what to do if you discover your ebook, um, which of course you own the copyright to, has been made available for unlawful download from a piracy website. And there's a few steps that they've offered, um, one of which of course is to, if you're being published by um, by someone else, by a tradi- you know, in a traditional publishing setup, then you want to contact your publisher and alert them to the fact that the site, you know, that the book is on the site and find out if they have already issued a takedown notice on your behalf or if they intend to issue a takedown notice on your behalf Um, because that is something that publishers will do if you're in a situation where you are published traditionally then they will issue those these things on your behalf because they also have you know skin in the game Um, then you need to make sure that the publisher you know hasn't actually authorized the site to make your ebook available like on some kind of you know free deal of some kind I don't know why you would do that but they do do that Um, and then you also want to look at you know contacting the website owner to request immediate removal of your ebook right to the copyright officer if there is one otherwise to the contact person Um, and they've even provided on the on this um website link which we will put in the show notes um a sample takedown notice what you need to write 
how you need to go about it. Um, and then the other thing that they suggest you do is to alert Google to the piracy site by completing a legal removal request, which they have put a link to. Um, if Google receives enough of these notices, they will push the piracy site right down search results. Because the worst thing that can happen to you with these kinds of things is that your book is on, an, is on a pirate site for free and that that is the number one thing that comes up when people Google the name of your book. So those are some steps that you can take. And I think um, if you're in this situation, it's worth having a look um, at the Australian Society of Authors website. Yeah, and it's very, very easy to follow these steps. It's, um, you know, the takedown notice is excellent because it's literally a, a templated letter. Of course, you could email it and you just fill in the blanks with the details of your book and your publisher and so on. And, um, yeah, it's an excellent uh, it's an excellent post. So we will put the link in the show notes, which you will find at soyouwantobeariter.com.au. Now, the other link you have for us is from Anne R. Allen's blog, right? It is. Now, Anne R. Allen, um, this, her blog is a, um, a site that we actually, like I refer to quite a lot because um, she writes terrific blog posts. It's a terrific author site. She writes great blog posts about writing and publishing, etc. It's an American site. She's celebrating her 10 years of blogging anniversary. And I think Anne and I have actually been in contact on Twitter for probably nine and a half of those years mm -hmm. um, because, of course, my blog is also 10 years old. So, you know, you it's a funny thing about Twitter. You tend to find yourself in this sort of group of people who are all in contact. And, of course, back in those days, um, it was a lot smaller place than it actually is now. Um, so, you know, we've been in contact for all those years. But I just wanted to draw your attention to her website, which is annrallen.com. And it, um, she's put up a post about her 10 lessons from 10 years of blogging, um, which, you know, when you've been blogging as long as she has, and she blogs regularly. Like I wrote a post this week that was, I was talking about the fact that when I first started blogging 10 years ago, I used to blog daily and I blogged daily for like two or three years. I don't and know how you did it. <laughs> but well, I know you did. <laughs> it was just part of the thing that I did. And then um, I looked at, like I, I went to write a post the other day about, you know, catch-up posts of all the things that I've been doing, which is a lot of things. And I realised that I hadn't blogged in a month, but that month seems to have flown by in about four hours. So um, this the post that I wrote was almost like a Christmas letter, a little catch-up, you know, here we are, this is what we're doing, whereas I used to blog daily but and still blogs daily. And she also um, accepts uh, guest posts, which, you know, if you want to, um, I, I always find guest posting is a great way to take your your own site and your books to, you know, a different audience. So I have actually guest posted for Anne in the past. Anywho, her 10 lessons uh, learned in 10 years of blogging are really worth having a look at, particularly if you have an author blog. Um, one of the things she says, her number two point, is that you get by with a little help from your friends um, and that she says that her blog would never have taken off without the blog friends that she made early on. And I think that that is also the case. And you and I have talked regularly about the importance of, you know, um, writer buddies. Um, and if you have a blog, you, you need your blog blogging buddies. And these don't necessarily have to be people that you've ever met. Like Anne and I have never met um, but we have, you know, supported each other over the years by just, you know, boosting posts or, you know, sharing things or various things. And um, I think that those things are, 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 it's an important lesson of, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily a competition. You need to actually look at who's beside you as you go on your journey through blogging or with writing. Um, and the other post that I particularly liked about hers 
is she made the, she makes the point point seven that an author blog is not a business blog. Now the reason right, that she yes. makes this it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because in some ways of course an author blog is a business blog. You know, like you're there um, to build your profile, you're there to bring attention to your books, you're there to do a whole range of things. Um, but the point she's making is that a lot of the advice out there for bloggers is directed at people who are blogging specifically for a business. Um, you know, who are blogging to create a business out of their blog. Um, whereas with your author blog, you're not necessarily creating a business from your blog. Your blog is a central hub for a whole range of other things that you do as part of your business. Um, and so the reason um, that this is important is because author blogs are for communication. They're not necessarily just for writing buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book posts all the time. And they won't get traffic, those kinds of posts. Like when you write on an author blog, you are, it's about you as much as it is about your books. And you need to be able to communicate, you know, some of your story as an author as part of your blogging experience as well. Um, so, you know, she makes the point that you don't need to blog more than once a week. And I think once your blog is up and running, I would agree with that. I do think that it's important when you're building a blog to probably blog a bit more often than that because you have to get yourself into Google's search. You have to start to come up, you know. Um, there's not a lot of point writing week in, week out for no one or day in, day out for no one. Um, and so you've also got to take that blog and you've got to take it out into the world through social media as well. But she she says, you know, like have fun with your blog and when it's not fun anymore, take a break from it. And I think that that's probably really valid advice. I think an important one also which she says is don't badmouth fellow writers and mm. remember reviewers are writers too. And mm. I would extend that to, of course, don't badmouth fellow writers. It's almost like um, stating the obvious, but maybe it's not obvious to some, I don't know. Uh, but also don't badmouth, you know, other people. They don't have to be writers, but other people that you might work with or your suppliers or or whatever. It's just not a good look. No. No, it's really not a good look. No, yeah. we we don't we don't like that one, do we? No, no, no. All right, but um, thank you for that. That's a really good one. I, yeah, Anne's Anne's blog is always um full of useful information, and we'll put the link in the show notes, which is at so you want to be a writer dot com dot au. So speaking of so you want to be a writer, of course, our book is out. Our labor of love, and it is called "So You Want to Be a Writer." <laughs> and we know that there are a lot of people. Yeah, we know that uh, there are a lot of people out there who um, who already have the book. So we would like, and if you haven't, then just go to so you want to be a writer slash book if you want to order a copy, or you can certainly search for it on Amazon or Kindle or or wherever. And if you have uh, a copy. We would love it if you could write us a review on Amazon or Goodreads or wherever it is your um, book portal of choice is because that would make us really happy. <laughs> it would make us really happy. That would make my headache disappear, I'm sure. <laughs> so, um, yes, thank you in advance if you're able to do that. We'd love to see some reviews um, on the book. Let's move on to our competition this week. This is very exciting because we have previously interviewed uh, an Australian Writers' Centre graduate, Astrid Schultz, and uh, her book, Four Dead Queens, 
is out and it's going gangbusters. Um, uh, the book launch in Sydney, or not book launch, but a book gathering um, in Sydney was on last week at uh, Kinokunia and there were so many people there. Astrid's already got a legion of fans and uh, we have three copies of her book to give away. Entries close on the 1st of July. So Four Dead Queens, what it's about. 17-year-old Lee Corrington is one of Quadara's most skilled thieves, but when she steals an unexpectedly valuable package from a messenger, she is soon entangled in a conspiracy that leads to all four of Quadara's queens being murdered, an enthralling, fast-paced murder mystery where competing agendas collide with deadly consequences. Four Dead Queens heralds the arrival of an exciting new young adult talent, which of course is the very talented Astrid Schott. And her book is going gangbusters. So go to writerscentre.com.au slash win in order to enter this competition. That's writerscentre.com.au slash win. So now, Al, Mm. are you ready for the word of the week? Oh, Val, I'm so ready. Although I just don't think you're going to beat my word of the week from last week that wasn't an official word of the week but was my word of the week. Oh, yes, we should mention that. Yes, I, I had a go at it, people, and I decided that this <laughs> I'm actually this is my one my one go for the entire year because I don't think I'm ever going to get better than <laughs> than my one word of the week. And I think you have to agree, it's pretty. It's a great pretty, word. Pretty special. So my word of the year, people, because it pretty much the sums. Year. Well, yeah, yeah. Okay. It pretty much sums up my entire year is quanked. <laughs> you like it? So quanked means Q is this how you do it, right? Okay. Q U A N K E D. Quanked. <laughs> and it means to be out overpowered by fatigue. Now tell it's an obsolete word of the day. It was um, listed in a glossary of words used in the county of Wiltshire by Dartnell and Goddard, 1893. 1893. So it has an actual word, but it's, it's it's fallen out of use, and I feel like we need to bring it back. It is quanked, and it means to be overpowered by fatigue. That's, and the example I, the example they give is, "Ooh, make us a cup of tea, will you? I'm absolutely quanked." I and I feel. I just think like everyone should use it at all times. In fact, when we do the merch, hashtag quanked oh, is gonna be is gonna be my it's gonna be my call to arms. Hashtag yeah. quanked. I anyway, love it. so sorry, okay, I, so I totally the hijacking yeah, hi, yeah, mm, sorry. Word of the week. So right. this week's word of the week is not quanked, but I do give you that it's a great word. Mm-hmm. It's vicinal. That's V I C I N A L. Vicinal. Do you know what it means? No, I'm too quaint. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quaint and I've got a headache. <laughs> okay. All right. It comes from the same root word as vicinity and means neighbouring or adjacent. So you might say Narrabeen, Warrywood and Eleanora Heights are three vicinal suburbs. Hmm. So if you don't know Sydney, they're three suburbs where the borders touch. Mm. Vicinal. There you go. Mm. Word of the week. Could All be right, vicious. Let's move on. It's Sorry. what? Well, you know, vicinal. So it makes it sound like like maybe they're vicious suburbs oh, and they're just close no, to each other. They're not. They're just close okay. to each other. All right, All right. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Had a great chat with the very dynamic Loretta Smith, who has worn many hats over the years, but then she became obsessed. <laughs> 
with this um, woman called Alice Anderson. Now, I'll let uh, Loretta explain to you who Alice is, but she has then, because she became obsessed with Alice, she wrote this book, A Spanner in the Works, The Extraordinary Story of Alice Anderson and Australia's First All-Girl Garage. So it is a fascinating story of research, of um, how she found out more things that uh, about Alice that even Alice's family didn't know. So let's have a listen to Loretta Smith. Thanks for joining us today, Loretta. Thanks, Valerie. It's great to be here. You've written this very cool book, A Spanner in the Works, The Extraordinary Story of Alice Anderson and Australia's First All-Girl Garage. Now, I just think this is so cool. How did you discover Alice and then why did you want to write a book about her? I've never heard it be called cool before, but I love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I first uh, read about Alice um, just over 10 years ago now, and it was in a book about Edna Walling, the Australian gardener who uh, lived around the same time as Alice and was also part of Alice's social set. So it was just a little cameo about Alice turning up to a party in her giant car and being this small mm. young woman and uh, she'd just opened this garage and she'd sunk a lot of her own money into it. And I'd never heard about an um, all-female garage before in Australia. And um, I'm, you know, I'm not exactly a rev head, although I've learnt a lot about cars having written this. But I, I was just really curious why hadn't I heard about this amazing woman? And I googled her, and there was hardly any information on her. And I just couldn't forget about her. I just kept on um, trying to find out more information. And then I was working as a case manager at the time, helping to keep elderly people at home in the city of Burundara, which is uh, part of, uh, it covers Kew, which is where Alice's garage was. And there was this elderly woman who had Alzheimer's and she uh, happened to mention when I was in her kitchen one day checking on her tablets and things that her mother was the mechanic and driver of the family because she worked for Alice Anderson and I just thought then and there, I think this Alice is telling me to keep going. And, yeah, I felt like I got a message from up on high. <laughs> oh, wow, absolutely. And you've really brought her to life. I feel this needs to be a television series. I feel like she she would be friends with Franny Fisher or something, you know. I just think that this is um such a, such a, as I said, such a cool story. Now, the thing is, though, you find out about Alice you hear from you you meet this woman who has some connection with her but as you say there wasn't very much out there in your googling in your research what mm. did you have to do from a research point of view to get more information to 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 really get enough for a book well um i was like a dog with a bone i guess and i haven't happened to have done a masters or a phd so in terms of doing research and being trained in that way, I, I was a bit of an autodidact. I really just dug in and thought, well, you know, I'm not going to give up on this. And I found out a, a historian who's in her 80s now. So I met her in her 70s and she was the first person to write about Alice in the 1980s, just a little 
um, thousand word article that was in a book and uh, she only thought to write about her because her mother had learnt to drive at the garage way after Alice had died and so I had to work very hard to track her down since she'd been retired and I met with her but it, it took a year before she handed over all the materials that she had on Alice which is fair enough I was coming out of nowhere and just very interested about this woman and um, in amongst that I found out uh, about Georgine Clarkson who also had written a PhD on early woman women motorists and had actually written about Alice in the mid-90s and she works at the University of Wollongong now and so um, Mimi Colligan who was the first historian to write about her and now Georgine Clarkson we're all good friends and it's kind of like um, Mimi worked on her in the 80s Georgine worked on her in the 90s and I've pulled the whole story together in the noughties. <laughs> Fantastic but then Getting bits of research is one thing, but then constructing it into a readable, interesting narrative is another. What did you, how did you approach that? Did you uh, divide it up into sections? Did you, you know, how did you actually think you were going to tell the story? First of all, I tried to, I, I, I didn't want to write, I knew it was going to be a, a biography, but I didn't want to write a boring biography because I've read enough of those. And so, <laughs> I thought maybe I can do it thematically rather than chronologically or maybe I can take this angle or that angle. And, look, I ended up going back to chronology uh, even though the, the prologue um, doesn't start with the beginning of her story. So I've kind of bookmarked it in a way that way with the prologue and the epilogue. But I, I did find that it worked best if I did do it chronologically uh, because, you know, she, she lived so long in the past. But, uh, you, you know, I one of the, the greatest um, sources of information was the University of Melbourne archives that had Alice's sister's archives there, Frances Derham. And she, she became famous and lived till she was very old, unlike um, Alice, who, who died quite young. But it, all her sisters lived till a ripe old age. But the eldest sister was really the matriarch of the family that kept all the records, including every letter uh, their father had written to their mother over the time. And whilst the two historians I mentioned uh, did interview uh, Frankie, as she was known, uh, a few times. It was only after she died and there were things left in the archives. And I went looking for Alice Anderson, not Frankie, and I discovered things that no one else had discovered because at that stage the the, the collection, which was quite large, was about 100 boxes, hadn't been catalogued. And so I was opening up letters that Alice had written that probably not, that was probably found in her garage after she died and she died at age 29. And so I, I just got addicted to the even the idea of research and just yes. thought, okay, I think I'm a nonfiction writer and I think I really love doing research. And so, uh, yes, I was able to keep, get her alive by getting a lot of written stuff that no one else had set their eyes on before, perhaps not even the immediate family because I think – that those things were collected and just stored away after Alice died and probably never looked into since then, except they were kept in the sisters' archives. What did that feel like when you were uncovering things that you knew these other historians had not um, un had not uh, come into contact with before? And as you mentioned, maybe even members of her family had not did not know exist. How did you feel? 
Oh, look, I felt like I I was actually meeting Alice in real life and I felt like the, the you know, 100-plus years just had disappeared. I mean, I, I found a letter that, that told me a lot about her Alice Bings trip that uh, not a lot of people knew about and uh, there, there were pressed flowers in the letter that she'd sent to Elizabeth Lothian, who was a friend of hers from the Lothian publishing family, and, uh, you know, just to write about how that their trip through Central Australia and how there'd been a 40-year drought and then suddenly they were that it had rained further north and they drove through this field of amazing flowers that were gone after two days and they, they took pressings of the flowers. I mean, things like that that are just absolutely priceless. Mm. Now, I want to circle, I want to come back to the actual writing of the book, but just for listeners who haven't read the book yet, can you give us a little bit of more of an idea about Alice because she's such a fascinating character. Yes, and I did, you know, fall in love with the character as I went along and I think if you're going to write any book, fiction or non-fiction, you really do have to be in love with your subject because it is such a process. Um, But Alice was born in 1897 and her father was a brilliant engineer who had an engineering business with John Monash and so that's where her her um, knowledge of mechanics came from initially, but she was actually born the year the first cars were seen across the world and in Australia particularly. So she grew up with with the car and her father was uh, surveyed roads as part of his work, so he was building the roads that she was to drive on. And, uh, yes, her father ended up um, setting up a motor service in um Healesville called the Blackspur Motor Service and she ended up becoming the secretary of that motor service. She'd studied bookkeeping at school and uh, she was so excited by what was happening next door with the the, the, the garage uh, mechanics and the drivers and so she nagged them until they taught her how to drive, probably I presume with the, the permission from the father who had actually, um, he was a bad uh, money manager so they were either very rich or very poor and Alice mainly grew up um, through the period when they were quite poor and living in the country in their cottage um, in Narbathong where they, they, they didn't even have running water when they first went and lived there. It was just a rough summer cottage. So she learned how to – she was a real tomboy and she learned how to, to shoot um, uh, you know, she used to shoot rabbits for the for the dinner table. She was ended up being a good horsewoman, and she just loved being outdoors. Her elder sister Frankie was the one that stuck by mum and did all the indoor chores. And she, yes, yeah, she just she was very um, precocious, really, as a young child. And uh, I, I've really called the story, a, you know, a girl's own adventure and a woman against the odds because she grows up mm. to wanting to run her own garage and despite everything that was against her as a woman of the time, um, you know, she had to go to a million garages before she'd find someone that would apprentice her to study mechanics after she became a licensed driver. So, yeah, and she couldn't get a loan from a bank without having a man behind her and her father uh, was almost bankrupt half the time so the banks wouldn't take him on and she never let anybody in the family or anyone know who supported her. There are a few guesses along the way, but yeah, and she created this garage and decided that she would have it as an all-women garage. So she was 
kind of of her time in the 1920s between the World War, two world wars when there were opportunities that had opened up for women um, that, that didn't exist at the time, but she was also very ahead of her time because she was the only woman in Australia and everyone referred to Alice Anderson in the 1920s as being the spokeswoman for women and motoring. Mm. And, I mean, even an all-women garage now gets talked about and gets press, let alone back then, it would have it would have been just such an extraordinary thing back then, right? Absolutely. I mean, there were some uh, all-women garages in Europe and in Britain particularly, but very much um, just pre and as a result of the war, they were closer to the front lines and they needed women drivers as much as they needed men drivers and mechanics to um, run the ambulances and things like that. But in Australia, all over Australia, Alice Anderson was it. There was no one else doing what she did. There might have been the odd backyard female mechanic and um, most women that learnt to drive, particularly if they learnt to drive through Alice, they also learnt about basic car maintenance and mechanics because in those days, uh, you know, you were in the country a couple of miles out of the cities and you didn't have a garage on every corner, far from it. You had to really know how to fix a car if you got stuck on your own which is one of the reasons why she invented the get out and get under. Mm, yes. <laughs> now, she, and she's just such a character, such a character. Now, the um, you uh, have had various careers. Can yes. you just give us a very brief potted history of your career and, and then when you sort of started writing? Okay, well, um, I started out as a secondary school teacher and I've done youth work and social work related jobs. Um, I've also worked in community arts and in in theatre. And I've always liked writing. And uh, I suppose uh, most writers, as they say, have a practice book. And my practice book was um, about 18 years ago. I started writing about um, a partner who died of breast cancer and uh, she was a real lively character and there'd been a documentary made about us too. And so um, that got close to getting published, but it, uh, it got to that point where the marketing um, teams in various publishers were just saying, look, she's not a household name and we're going to, it's going to be hard to publish because it involves death, even though it was very much about her life and what an amazing life she had but look I you know English was my best language at school and you know I loved teaching English at secondary level and um, all of my family actually are very interested in reading and writing and I've always been an, an absolute avid reader and I don't think you can be a good writer without being an avid reader mm. and uh, yes I've got piles of um, short stories and poems and plays and all sorts of unfinished things in my in my filing cabinet but I think it's all led to this sense that um, I was told that by publishers that I could write and it was a matter of finding something that was commercially viable and I did because I was getting um, advice from two academic historians I did um, initially apply um, to I submitted to a couple of university publishers and when they both knocked it back including Melbourne Uni and Monash Uni that would be the most likely to want to have it I thought look I, I'm finding this too academic myself so I threw it all up in the air 
knew I'd done all the research and I couldn't find any more on her. I mean, any more than I could put in the book at least. So um, I just put all that aside and I rewrote the whole thing and that's why I think it's become, you know, it's becoming a commercial success because of that. I've done the research but I've written it in a way that's, uh, you know, a bit of a rollicking narrative as well. So it's still a biography but it's got that narrative non-fiction that glues it together. Yes, flows really well. What do you, so hang on, you rewrote the whole thing. So are you telling me that you wrote it in another format first? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, started, I started writing it as a um, historical fiction because I was told, look, Alice died in 1926. There's no way you're going to get enough information uh, because the, the two other historians had said, look, you know, there's not much out, more out there. But look, I dug long and hard enough yes. and... You know, Trove's also an amazing thing. I don't know how anyone did their research through newspapers before Trove. So uh, I did find find enough. And also I found more relatives of garage girls. So I was able to include more garage girls as I went along. Carolyn Webb um, of the the Melbourne Age did an article a couple of years ago and I thought, gosh, this isn't good timing. She's seen my Facebook page on Alice Anderson but I haven't uh, finished the book yet and she's promoting it already. But I got two relatives of Garage Girls out of that article so that that was fantastic. But, look, I, I, I didn't throw it up in the air and write the whole thing very differently it was still chronological but I made it more of a narrative that I wanted to read rather than just including a lot of um, facts that were interesting in and of themselves but um, I felt that Alice hadn't come alive until I wrote Mm. it more of that sense of being in the period and and living it as she would have lived it and as the garage girls lived it and really studying the many many photos that I luckily had that Mimi Colligan had initially most of them she had from interviewing um, garage girls and and um, relatives at the time that were alive but of course everyone had passed away that knew Alice directly except for Mary, Mary, young, you know, young Mary was four years old when she first went to the garage. When her mother went, went and worked there, and she was the person that I'd case managed, so she was the right, closest right. thing I had to a primary resource. And so, and you can you take us through just a vague, um, a rough timeline? Like you researched it for this period, then you wrote it for a certain number of months or years, whatever and so on you know can you give us a bit of an idea of that well I've added up that I reckon I did about three years full-time research yeah and um, I've been told you know I've left no no stone unturned I suppose feeling that I wasn't um, an academic in terms of having a PhD myself a bit like Alice having to outdo the men I thought I had to outdo the academics so um, yeah I probably overdid the research but when I've ever acted or directed, I've, I've found that over-researching a character isn't a bad thing. If you've got a sense of what someone had for breakfast and what their daily routine was, even if you don't include that in the actual script, it, it, it fills out the character for you. So I don't regret the amount of research that I did. I think the next book I write, I'll probably be a little bit more focused but it was a huge learning curve for me. I mean, I've certainly, I probably did my 20,000 hours more than the 10,000 hours, yes. <laughs> but look, um, 
it did take the best part of 10 years in that I also have a physical disability when I started to deteriorate over the last 10 years. So I was doing it in amongst a lot of surgery and recovery from surgery. So I I suppose someone could relate to that as having a full-time job and trying to do um, a major project outside of that. There was, uh, you know, there was months and months that I couldn't do anything because I was too heavily medicated and things like that. But, you know, it was great to have this project to come back to and feel mm. the responsibility of I'm not just writing a fiction here, as important as fiction is. I felt this incredible responsibility to bring Alice back to life and to tell her full story that had never been told because when she died, she was on the front page of every newspaper and she was a national treasure. But like so many women, she was written out of the history books. Yes, and yes. Yeah, hardly anyone knew about her until I started feeding things out there on my Facebook page and, um, you know, getting out there on social media and interviewing people and spreading the word that way. So by the time I got to get an agent and then a publisher and get it out there, you know, it's great to have these people taking the journey with you as well. Oh, that's one of the reasons I love this so much. So now you've you did all the research. You knew you'd done you you did heaps, and then you realise I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write it. Whether it's you know the first version that was slightly more academic, or then when you you know rewrote it in a more slightly yes. more engaging way. Yes. What was your approach there in terms of? Um, it, getting the words on paper as in did you have a structure to your day did you have a word count goal did you how did you structure the actual process of writing to ensure that it got written yeah well in some ways it was great that I didn't have a job because I I was my I I was my own person and whilst I would love to do that and I might do that in the future because I'm in a much better position physically than I was in terms that I'm not dealing with severe chronic pain. I've got chronic pain but not severe chronic pain which, you know, through a lot of this I was doing and some of it was, you know, as a distraction as well. I would I would just sink myself into the 1920s and the pain would just go to the background, you know. Um, but I would love to have a word count or say that I'm going to sit in front of the computer for a certain amount of hours. What I can say I did is I made it my priority and um, it was my passion. It was a passion project. I applied for various bits of funding here and there but never never got that. It, You know, there's scarce as hen's teeth for writers, as we all know. It's very hard, particularly if it's your first, you know, book that might be fully published. So, um, yeah, I... I just made it whenever I could. Sometimes I was falling asleep in front of my computer because I was still on heavy medication and, uh, you know, having – but um, I, I kept her alive in me and it was my first priority every day to see what I could do, even if it was going back and reading. Although I learnt very quickly that you really do have a different brain for – um, the creative writing process and the editing process because when I started yeah, being a little sure. bit of a perfectionist I would try and write something in the morning and say try and edit it in the afternoon and I realized that slowed down the process a lot mm. so I would write and write and write and write I'd write a whole chapter and then I'd go back and and review it and it might end up being two chapters because I'd have too many words in there but I definitely had a plan I definitely had a chapter outline that um, 
by halfway through, I'd, I'd fine-tune that chapter outline to know that that's what I would be following and I didn't really change very much from there. But just give us an idea of, I know you said you've made her the priority, um, but mm. when you were in the depths of writing, were you writing, say, for eight hours or four hours or, you know, what uh, part of the day? Hours, probably mm-hmm. five hours a day. I, oh. I was better in the afternoons than the mornings. So, yeah, um, I probably shouldn't have ta- probably should have taken more breaks during that than I did, but I'd get lost mm-hmm. in it. You know, know. the time would just go. And I think that's when you know you're in the flow, when you look out the window and it's light and then you look out and it's dark. You think, gosh, (laughs) I have been here for a long time. But I would make sure that I didn't have too many um, disruptions. My partner at the time would um, come home from work and if I was upstairs she knew that I'd be working and we'd just, you know, uh, she'd, she'd know not to interrupt me in that time. Uh, my dog would interrupt me during the day, but, you know, that was fair enough, I suppose. Now, we have to tell listeners, we have to tell <laughs> listeners, Loretta, the name of your dog is? Is Alice. <laughs> Alice Austin Anderson Smith, to be correct. And Alice the dog is actually named after Alice Anderson, isn't that correct? Yes, yes, she is. Yes, she is. I was going to call her um, after my grandmother who was sissy and then I thought, that's close to Alice. Why don't I call her Alice, you know? As I think a that's a good decision. To the, to the woman. So All right, now. I'll be sissy. Yep. At what point did you um, know that you'd have a book deal? Because that's a lot of research to do just out of interest and then, of, of course, at some point you – then got the book deal. Tell us about that process. Um, I got a book deal through getting an agent and uh, it's very interesting. Uh, you know how some publishers, they'll say that, you know, you can send something in on a certain day of the week and yeah. we will guarantee that we'll look at it and um, if we're interested, we'll get back to you. Well, one publisher did that before I had an agent and they sat on it for three months and then as as soon as I got an agent there was a bidding war and that publisher wanted me which I thought was very interesting so I think you know how much do you really get beyond that slush pile or does it go up the ladder and um, yeah so I was very fortunate that I got an agent that really suited me that has really been a great champion of the book and, you know, and and feminism in general and uh, feminist writers. And there was a bidding war over the book, so I was very, very lucky. And now there are five production companies reading it um, with interest to option it for a film or a miniseries. I'm telling you, I can see the miniseries already. It's just, it's, I, I could see it from the first few pages, or the first chapter anyway. That's um, amazing. Oh, oh, absolutely. I could just see it all play out in, in my head. Anyway, so um, uh, so then you get the deal, you go with Hachette and you had written the whole thing by then? You had yes, already, I, you submitted yeah. the full manuscript? Yes, um, and so it was really just a matter of editing and they said I didn't need a structural edit um, and that uh, they didn't think there was a lot of fat in it. So I delivered just over 100,000 words and they were happy to keep it to 100,000. So, you know, it's a decent read. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I hadn't been through a formal editing process 
Um, I actually had a, quite a short turnaround. They wanted to bring it out this year because 2019 is the actual uh, 100th anniversary of Alice building the garage. Mm. And so there was a six-month turnaround, which is pretty short for yes, a, a book. Short. And yeah. also I'd booked to go overseas um, in November of last year. So I was I had two editors on me, an in-house editor and another editor that employed to to fast track the process. And I it was um yeah, it was a baptism of fire because saying they didn't think it needed a structural edit and it didn't need a lot, you know. I was thinking, oh, this will be a breeze. No, <laughs> it was up for five in the morning and then I'd have a few hours sleep on to be at it, you know. For for a couple of weeks there, I hardly slept. But um, look, I'm I am so happy with the editing process because mm. it's amazing. I, I learnt so much about editing that you can just change a paragraph or a couple of words, and it just makes something it just makes something sing where sing. it hadn't yep. before. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Now now that this is out, uh, it's been released. What's next for you? Are you already have you already you know thought of um, your next obsession and your next dog's name? <laughs> um, I have pitched another book to my agent mm -hmm. and they're quite excited about it. They're giving me a little bit of a breather before um, Hachette has, is interested in um, having first option of my next book, which is lovely. Uh, okay. So whether they'll pick it up or not, who knows. But um, it's going to be about myself and uh, my experience through the medical profession. I have osteogenesis imperfecta. Uh, I have a mild version, but I was born with dislocated hips that weren't picked up. So I have about 50% of my body is metal now, including all of my spine and so I've been through a very very interesting it's kind of a like going to be a lay person's story of how um, the medical professions changed over the last five decades or so I'm giving my age away here but um, so the, the working title is Incarnations a memoir of a body on the cutting edge of medicine because wow. I've always had to wait for technology to catch up with me to have certain surgeries done and yeah it's just uh and it will involve research apart from in uh, yes. my whole family just going back to even how you know way back um in the 60s when I was born they didn't think the medical profession didn't think that young you know babies and young children had developed the same um, central nervous system and they didn't feel pain in the same way so I wasn't given pain relief as a young child, you know, mm -hmm. things like that that have changed, the way x-rays are given, the, the way anaesthetics have changed. So I find all that very fascinating from a layperson's perspective, having gone through that, that you know, system time and time again. So, yeah, it seems to be showing some interest and there's quite a few books out there at the moment on women and the body politics. Mm -hmm. So. Hopefully that'll be something that picked up. But look, there's plenty of women of history out there I'm very interested in looking at too, you know, if if the time comes. So hopefully this will be the first of many books for me. I have no doubt that it's going to be. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Loretta. My pleasure. It's been great talking to you, Valerie. 
This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our online course, Writing Chapter Books for six to nine-year-olds, provides you with the perfect introduction to writing the first books and series of books that children will read by themselves. You'll explore the types of quirky, adventurous or silly stories that appeal to kids of this age and how to combine the chapter format with illustrations to maximise your story's impact. By using chapter hooks, relatable characters and suitable story themes, you'll discover how to enthrall and delight young readers. With our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months unlimited access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash chapter. That's writerscentre.com.au slash chapter. There you go, Loretta Smith, and she's just a little dynamo. All right, so what are you doing in the coming week, Al, before we chat again? Oh, I don't know, Val. Weeding, <laughs> I think. Does, it's that time of the year, people, where the the, guard, oh, the country garden has to be cut yeah. back, weeded and mulched and ready so it can burst forth in spring. So I think of you regularly because my garden is a disaster and every time I look at it I just go, Gee, I wish I was more like Alison. <laughs> I do. Every time I walk up my driveway, that's what I think oh. currently because my garden is a disaster. Well, it's I think it's just, just a matter of a you just have to kind of put aside the time to get it done. It's a bit like writing, Val. I know. You know you're not going to find time. You've got to make time. I know. So we put aside weekends. And you know what we do, though, is it, the great thing about our garden is it looks amazing but it's actually pretty low maintenance because mm. it – we basically do a couple of big weekends in June and then we do maybe a big weekend, one big weekend in summer and then that's it. Whereas really? oh, there is a – yeah, because it's, it's you know, well, we use some – mulch is a wonderful – like this is not so you want to be a gardener, people, but mulch <laughs> is amazing. Um, and the other thing is, of course, I mean the, the builder may not agree with you me so much because he does have to mow it kind of once oh, a week yeah. over summer. But we now also have our children have finally got old enough to be useful, and now oh, they yes. mow. Now they mow too. So you great. know, it's great. Yes. Wow. I've got have one a, of those push mowers. You know. Yes, yeah, like, so have we. Oh, with no, no electricity. No. Oh no, we don't have one of those. Like it's God, manual. Really? Why? Yeah. Have you only got like a two not meter much. by one meter? Yeah, yeah. not big. <laughs> yeah, no, well, you put it this way, you wouldn't be doing our garden with that. There's no way. <laughs> but I would recommend that if you are planning on having a large garden at some point, have children so that they can get big enough to mow it. <laughs> okay, that's a really good reason to have children. It's a good tip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks. Alice tip of the week. <laughs> All right, where do we find you online now? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And for those of you who care, like I do, um, happy mm. end of financial year. <laughs> oh seriously <laughs> who is that happy for i don't know i just always like it <laughs> i know that's brilliant <laughs> that's really really good yeah i'll be popping some bubbles on 30 june okay <laughs>
I said for those of you who care, and I know there are some of you out there, okay? Anyway, um, thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time and in the new year. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 